Hello. Today, I'm honored to be joined by Dr. Brian Hurley, Medical Director of the Division of Substance Abuse Prevention and Control for the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health and President-Elect of the American Society of Addiction Medicine. Dr. Hurley is board certified in psychiatry, addiction psychiatry, and addiction medicine, and he has previously served on the board of GLMA, Health Professionals Advancing LGBT Equality, and as the chair of the LGBT Advisory Committee to the American Medical Association's Board of Trustees. Thank you, Dr. Hurley, for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. Let's get started. So how much data do we have on addiction in the LGBTQIA community? I'm glad that we have some data, although more information is typically better. But there's two main sources of information that we have related to sexual and gender diversity and substance use. The first is NISARC, the National Epidemiologic Survey of Alcohol and Related Conditions that asked information about sexual orientation and from which we're able to make estimates about substance use in people who are not straight. And the National Survey on Drug Use and Health has additional questions about sexual orientation that we can use. There's still a need to add questions on gender identity to most population-based surveys. And, you know, aside from non-population-based either convenience samples or, you know, more, more targeted surveys, we're not as reliably able to make estimates about substance use in transgender populations as we are on LGB populations. So from the data that we do have, how do the rates of substance use disorders among sexual and gender minorities compare to those of their heterosexual and cisgender counterparts? Most people who are sexual and gender minorities do not have substance use disorders. But the rates of substance use disorders among sexual and gender minorities is higher than uh, heterosexual and cisgender counterparts. How much higher really depends on what you're looking at. So NISARC gives us estimates of anywhere between 50% higher, 50% being half the odds ratio uh, higher, so 1.5 rates up to four to six times as high Uh, depending, again, on the substance category and whether you're looking at gay men, lesbian women, bisexual women, bisexual men, it it, it really does depend. Um, And so we do see some variability when we're talking about individual substances in different subgroups. So, for example, sexual minorities who identify as women, according to NISARC, have a higher rate of using alcohol, whereas sexual minorities who identify as men have a greater rate of using non-alcohol intoxicants, such as various sedative medications or stimulant medications. But again, that varies quite a bit geographically. And in general, rates of substance use are higher among sexual and gender minorities. But I also want to make the point, being a sexual gender minority does not mean that you will be, you know, have risky substance use or will develop a substance use disorder. It's a higher rate, but the majority of people who are sexual and gender minorities do not have substance use disorder. Hmm. So 
why might sexual and gender minorities be susceptible to developing a substance use disorder? In particular, what challenges do LGBTQIA plus youth face that increase their risk for substance misuse? Most people who develop a substance use disorder begin using substances to solve problems. And the substances help in some ways. That's why people keep using them. But that solution itself then becomes a problem. That is to say, the solution then has adverse effects or side effects or unintended consequences that are characterized by a substance use disorder. So substance use disorders, there's 11 clinical criteria, but we could abbreviate that to people lose control over the way they use substances. They begin to have negative consequences. That's actually part of the diagnostic criteria and begin to have physiologic changes such as tolerance or um, begin to experience uh, withdrawal symptoms if they stop using, they begin to crave substances. So substance use disorders typically develop as a response to substance use, but the substance use itself typically develops as a solution to a problem. Now, what does this have to do with sexual and gender minorities? You mentioned uh, the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer. I usually refers to either intersex or intergender. A usually refers to allies. Um, So the LGBTQIA communities. And if we could think of the common, common reasons that people begin to use substances to solve their problems is traumatic experience and feeling disconnected. You know, as human beings, we are wired for connectivity. And so feeling disconnected or feeling threatened all drive up substance use patterns. And in a cisnormative and heteronormative world where people might have religious pressures or social norm pressures to be straight and cisgender, being not straight and not cisgender puts people at risk for feeling disconnected for feeling traumatized, for feeling alone. And substance use can, it's not inevitable, but can be a perceived solution when somebody is feeling alone, when somebody is feeling ostracized. It it can help people cope with uncomfortable feelings or uncomfortable situations. And not that being LGBTQIA is itself an adverse childhood experience, but being LGBTQI and particularly gender nonconforming is, you know, in one's youth, put somebody at extraordinary risk of adverse childhood experiences, such as abandonment, disconnection, rejection, all of which drive up substance use. So in particular, when, when youth who might feel disconnected, feel ostracized and feel othered, and I have never met anyone who is LGBTQIA that has not at some point felt disconnected or othered as a result of their sexual orientation or gender identity, craving connection or craving relief and substance use being a perceived solution to those problems is, at least in my mind, a a, a very clear reason why uh, sexual and gender minorities are at increased risk of using substances and increased risk of developing a substance use disorder. Mm. Somewhat related to that, how common are co-occurring mental health conditions in sexual and gender minorities who use substances? The National Survey on Drug Use and Health looks at prevalences. 
And so if we think about the prevalence of having a mental health condition in the United States, which is a point prevalence of roughly one in 10 or so, and a lifetime prevalence of roughly one in 20. And uh, developing a substance use disorder as a, as a point prevalence of roughly one in 10 and a lifetime prevalence, well, kind of depending on, on the group, we see rates of developing co-occurring conditions is roughly double. Now, again, it depends, you know, for, for uh, gender minorities, it actually, we don't have great population-based statistics, but it's likely more than that. And in sexual minorities, again, it, it largely depends, uh, but we sort of think roughly double um, the co-occurring rate of the gender population. The co-occurring disorders that occur in roughly half of all people with a substance use disorder have a non-substance co-occurring mental health condition are more common in sexual and gender minorities. And we think usually as a response to minority stress, that is the, the experience of being a sexual gender minority in a world that is largely built for straight and cisgender people. Yeah. So what are some of the other unique health concerns that affect LGBTQIA plus individuals struggling with addiction? I think the biggest health concern is violence. Mm-hmm. Um, LGBTQ people have much higher risk of experiencing homophobic and transphobic directed violence. Another risk is overdose. Uh, we're in the midst of an overdose crisis. And so when people become ambivalent about living and are using substances at high rates that cause high rates of overdose, that's another specific health concern. Health concerns that come with lack of access to health care. So that's everything from lack of cardiovascular screenings and cancer screenings put LGBT populations um, at higher risks of developing negative health outcomes. Various substances are associated with higher risk of uh, high risk sexual behavior. And so risks around sexually transmitted infections is also at higher risk in uh, LGBTQIA individuals who have substance use disorders. And then it it depends on what you count as a health risk. I mean, I think of socially determined health and wellness as having a huge effect on people's well-being. And so people who are LGBTQIA and who have substance use disorders are at high risk of losing their employment, of losing housing, of uh, not having a social support network to help when that when if you do lose your job in your housing, that, that your social support network oftentimes is the thing that might protect you from homelessness. That LGBTQIA individuals, depending on the communities in which they reside, are at higher risk of social ostracization. So I think of all, all of those as pertinent health concerns. So how likely are members of the LGBTQIA plus community to seek treatment? It's an excellent question that I actually don't know offhand the answer to, but let me answer the question in a slightly different way. Only roughly 5% of people with an addiction seek treatment, regardless of sexual orientation or gender identity. And there's no evidence that being LGBTQIA or being a sexual or gender minority increases the chances that you are going to seek treatment. So that's a long way of saying that rates of seeking treatment are overall very low and probably just as low, if not lower, for sexual or gender minorities. What factors complicate the treatment of substance use disorders 
in sexual and gender minority patients? Treatment for sexual and gender minority patients seems to be just as effective as treatment for heterosexual and cisgender patients. That is to say, um, treatment works, and there's no evidence that being a sexual or gender minority worsens treatment outcomes. However, there are innumerable individual characteristics that will impact whether or not somebody who is a sexual or gender minority is likely to successfully complete treatment. So being a sexual or gender minority does not mean you have to go to an LGBT treatment program. That is, that's not true. And that uh, medications and counseling and support, which we think of as the main domains of addiction treatment, seem to work just as well in LGBT people as not. But if an LGBT person doesn't feel safe, doesn't feel heard, doesn't feel respected, is being bullied, those are all factors that are going to strongly impact somebody's exit from a treatment program. And so what I would say is, if you're an LGBT person uh, and you have a substance use disorder and you're seeing a clinician, and that could be as an outpatient, that could be in a day treatment program or an intensive outpatient program, that can be in a residential program or a withdrawal management program, but you're seeing a clinician who is generally, and I don't mean like perfectly, but generally free of heterosexism and homophobia, generally fear of transphobia, right? You know, all of us are dealing with our own internal homophobia, transphobia. We live in a world where that's internalized. So I'm not trying to say that like we're all perfect. You have to see a perfect clinician, but sort of generally free of homophobic, heterosexist and transphobic attitudes, who is welcoming and promotes openness particularly when discussing sexual orientation and gender identity topics, who is reasonably well-informed about the language that we use to describe sexual and gender diversity um, or, and or open to learning about the language we use and understanding the health needs of the communities they serve, you're probably going to be fine. Um, you don't necessarily have to see an LGBT-identified clinician in order to receive competent LGBT care. Mm-hmm. That said, if you're an individual whose methamphetamine use is intrinsically tied to sexual behavior. And it's going to be very difficult for you to talk about your experience using and your experience recovering outside of being able to talk about your experiences having sex while using methamphetamine. It might benefit you to find a like a crystal clear group or meth anonymous group or find some setting where you can comfortably talk about those topics. So I think there's still a role for LGBT specific treatment, but it's not as reductive as, ah, I'm a gay man, so I have to go to a gay man's group. It has to be contextualized in, well, what substances am I using? And can I reasonably open up and be vulnerable about my experience in the context in which I'm receiving treatment? So there's a role for LGBT specific treatment, but being an LGBTQIA person does not require you to go to an LGBTQIA specific treatment program. Yeah. Kind of related to that, can you talk a bit about the importance of LGBTQIA plus affirmation in the treatment of substance use disorders? I think one of the risks in delivering LGBTQIA affirming treatment is it assumes that if you're LGBTQIA, that affirming that is what you need. Mm. There are lots of people who are sexual gender minorities 
where their sexual or gender minority status is incidental to their substance use. People who've been out for decades, very comfortably, comfortably situated with or without a partner, right? Like virtually everyone in, in their lives knows their gender identity uh, or and or sexual orientation, right? Like, like, and they use a lot of alcohol, right? <laughs> like, um, the therapy for the for for and I have patients like this in my own practice, right? The treatment is not necessarily to continue to affirm it's okay for you to be gay or trans. <laughs> A lot of those patients are like, yeah, no, it's fine. Like, that's fine. I'm good. <laughs> like, um, so what's the role? Well, it depends, right? Like, is the person really struggling with understanding their identity, exploring their identity, coming to peace with their identity? In which case, I think it's vitally important to understand what is being a sexual or gender minority means to that person and how can they navigate that in a way that's going to, you know, honor their truth, mm-hmm. right? But not everyone needs that. And there's a lot of people I'm like, hey, let's talk about your drinking. You know, the, the most important thing is to talk to you about your drinking, right? And and we might get to talking about what it was like to grow up as a gay person in a very homophobic community or grow up as a trans person in a very cis, you know, cis normative place, right? Like we may get there, but there may or may not even be related to why somebody's using. So what is the role? It depends. Depends on the needs of the patient. Yeah. Thanks. What can we do to screen for, prevent, and treat addiction more effectively for sexual and gender minorities? The first step is to honor people's pronouns. You know, the, there's a big push for pronouns and to just know how to refer to people is a part of basic human respect. Mm-hmm. And so rather than assuming how to refer to somebody based on appearance or otherwise, um, that as part of our initial engagement process, and, and I say this as an addiction clinician, but really as a healthcare field, should be welcoming and promote openness of, you know, how, how do you want to be addressed? What's your name? What are your pronouns? And then to ask people in a respectful way to disclose their sexual orientation and gender identity when it becomes relevant. And then to follow the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force recommendation on what to screen for which includes routine screening for alcohol and tobacco product use. And, you know, I think that people who are sexual and gender minorities can probably also be asked about what else they use. I mean, the way that I do screening is I talk to people about smoking, which is recommended for everybody. I then ask, what else do you smoke other than tobacco, which is a a, a sort of a it's not, it's not part of the standard screening tool, but it becomes a way that I can evoke conversation around what other things people smoke. And I ask, what else do you use? Mm-hmm. Now, I work in addiction. I'm an addiction psychiatrist. And so I ask about, I do a pretty complete assessment on substance use routinely. But I, I think creating opportunities in, where we routinely ask everybody about what substance categories they use is the step one. In one, identifying what substances people use. And then two to ask people about their sexual identities and their gender identities to make sure that we are not missing opportunities to identify and support people who use drugs who may not be straight and cisgender with opportunities to do so. And then how do we prevent developing a substance use disorders in uh, queer spaces? Uh, We make the world a friendlier place for sexual and gender minorities to thrive. So continue to 
chip away at the effect of heteronormativity and cisnormativity on employment and housing and academics and create communities where people could be supported if their families of origin aren't there for them mm-hmm. uh, to create spaces for people to heal from their traumas and recover you know the the opposite of addiction isn't just not using the the opposite of addiction is to find opportunities for people to thrive without using and that that is much less a healthcare activity right there's very little that i can do for somebody in the office there's not like a treatable condition that i have a treatment for that has to do with where you're living are you working do you have a date on Saturday night? Right. It's, 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 it's the practical stuff that, that helps support people's health and wellness. Thanks. And finally, is there anything else you'd like to add? When there are health disparities and uh, differences in raise, rates of addiction is a, is a health disparity, we run the risk of becoming reductive. Uh, I'll use an HIV example. Men who have sex with men are at higher rates of HIV than men who don't have sex with men, as an example. And as a result, there's a tend to be assumption, ah, if you're men who have sex with men, you have to be screened for HIV. You're at high risk of HIV. Without necessarily descending into the particulars of does this man who have sex with men actually engage in higher risk sexual activity, right? Yeah. Condom use, prep use testing, right? Those things have a huge effect on HIV transmission, independent of who you're having sex with. And the type of sex you're having makes a big difference. So um, not everybody who is men who have sex with men is at at automatic high risk of developing HIV. And when we just sort of reflexively, and and I'm a believer in HIV testing, I get HIV tested regularly, like, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we shouldn't test. But um, we run the risk when we do population-specific targeted screening that doesn't actually contextualize the screening to people's lives of reinforcing stigma. So what does it have to do with addiction? For sexual and gender minority populations that are higher risk of developing substance use disorders, it does not mean that everyone has a substance use disorder. And I don't think we can treat everyone that uses drugs or treat everyone who's a sexual gender minority as though they're going to use drugs and as though then, then they inevitably are going to have a substance use disorder. Yeah. There's a lot of assumptions that any substance use is bad, but actually we see lots of people that consume alcohol and in fact other intoxicants that don't develop use disorders related to alcohol or other intoxicants. And so I'm not necessarily advising abstinence for everybody, nor do I think any substance use, regardless of whether the community involved is a sexual gender minority community or not. I don't necessarily advise abstinence to everybody, right? It has to depend on the the context. And so I think what we owe communities is an accurate understanding of risks and benefits and alternatives and ways to use safer if people are going to use, you know, harm reduction strategies to keep people alive are going to be much more effective at engaging and supporting community health and wellness than fear-based I'm thinking back to the early HIV messages, you know, have to use a condom every time. If you ever don't use a condom, you're going to die. Like for a while, that was really important. But I also think that, you know, talking about harm reduction, sexual practices has an important role in engaging people who might not be ready for condom to sex every time. I think the same same thing with substance use, um, that we should be having broad conversations that help contextualize how people can enhance their health and wellness without assuming that any substance use is necessarily going to result in uh, 
terrible morbidity or mortality. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you again, Dr. Hurley, for taking the time to give us an overview of substance use disorders in the LGBTQIA plus population. I think it's important that we understand the unique challenges people from this community face. And I hope we can speak again in the future. Much looking forward. Thanks for having me. Thanks.